Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by long-time healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's edition of The Naked Scientist Science Phone-In. A whole hour of your science questions and emails. And that's with me, Chris Smith, with Kat Arnie. Hello. And with Dave Ansell. Hi there. Uh, On the way this week, scientists have discovered the cosmic equivalent of a vacuum cleaner. It's a massive black hole at the centre of our galaxy, and it recently swallowed up something about the size of a planet. Also, there's very bad news for storing radioactive waste. Why there are some major holes in the plans that nuclear scientists have put together, we'll be finding out about those. And also a step forward in our understanding of why some people develop dementia as they age. More on that shortly. Kat? And we'll be finding out why teams that play in the red are more likely to win. Is it a psychological advantage or do they just do less washing? And we're finding about the uh, chemistry of a cup of tea with our special guest Mark Peplow, who will be joining us later. And in this week's Kitchen Science, I'll be doing some exciting chemistry on copper coins. The ingredients you'll need are some dirty old change, some vinegar, some fruit juice, maybe some water. So if you want to win a prize, stand by and I'll be giving, giving you what to do very soon. Up for grabs today is a signed copy of Dr Chris's new book, Naked Science. Great for parties, bar mitzvahs, all that kind of thing. Full of fun and funky science stories. You can win a copy by having a go at this week's teaser. Right, this week we want to know how many bones are there in the human hand... That's not including broken ones in my case. Uh, We're including the wrist. We want to know how many bones are there in the human hand. The closest answer wins. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. Now, astronomers have found that the galaxy in the centre of our black hole had its last meal in the mid-1940s, and it was about the size of a small planet. Now, at the centre of our galaxy, there's this thing called a black hole. They call it SGRA star for some reason. Uh, A black hole is where there's a huge amount of matter that's all been crushed into a small space. It's got so much gravity that it can distort space so much that even light can't escape from it. It's that heavy. Um, Now, how do we know it's there? Well, if you look at the way the stars are moving around the the centre of our galaxy, they're all orbiting something. And so even though if it was black, you could tell it's there because everything's orbiting it and there must be something very heavy there. And if you look at how heavy it must be, it must be about as heavy as four million times the weight of our sun. Now, as stuff falls into it, um, it sort of hits other things. And because it's falling into something so heavy, it hits them very, very hard and heats up. In fact, it heats it up so much that it's hotter than red hot, hotter than white hot. It's actually X-ray hot, immense temperatures. Um, So if something solid falls into it, there's an immense pulse of X-rays fly out from it. So it's almost like squeezing an orange and the juice that flies out in the context of something big going in a black hole is an X-ray. Yeah, not just one X-ray, a huge pulse, enough that it would wipe out life if it came anywhere near us. And so this gets ejected from the black hole. What happens to the X-rays after that? Do we just see them or what? Well, um, if you were looking at it, you would see it get about one million times brighter than it is normally. So Uh, a black hole gets brighter. How can something that's black get brighter? 
Well, the black holes a bit. Black holes you can see them because of the stuff falling into them, but okay. the actual, you can't actually see the black hole in the middle. You can just see the stuff around the outside of it. So, what have these guys seen at the centre of the galaxy? Well, what they've seen is, although no one was looking sixty years ago in the nineteen forties because they didn't have the technology, um, but they've got used a satellite, and you can see this ring of um, glowing gas. What's happened is this pulse of X-ray has gone out, and it's like if light hits some smoke the smoke looks like it's glowing, or this gas looks like it's glowing, and they can see this ring, which is about 60 light-years wide, so it must have happened 60 light-years ago. So it's like the ripples on... You drop a pebble in a pond, you get the ripples going out across the surface of the pond as as you go. That's it. And from looking at how bright this is, they've worked out it must have been about the weight of mercury and about 60 years ago. One object, or, you know... Because there have been lots of reports of... Um, objects being swallowed by black holes over time, haven't there? In fact, there was um, a recent study. Someone found a star that's actually been kicked out of our own our own galaxy. It's heading off just into intergalactic space. And when they modelled where this star must have come from, it started off where it was it was sort of doing a waltz, twirling around another star. It's part of a, what's called a binary system. And they were going very very close to this black hole at the centre of our galaxy. One of them got sucked in, and the other one got this sort of I suppose cosmic slingshot that just bunged it out. And it's it just went spinning out of our own galaxy and is heading off. It's just, just I think, in the last few years, headed out of, of our galaxy. I mean, I guess they're not absolutely sure it's one object, but they know it must have been a fairly... a lot of object space, stuff in a small space, otherwise it would have been a much longer pulse. A big cosmic burp. <laughs> now, one of the things which troubles scientists quite a lot is what to do with all of the radioactive waste that we produce here in the UK. And just here in Britain, we've got a pretty staggering 450 thousand cubic meters of high level radioactive waste that we need to decide what to do with this is things like uranium and plutonium which are the products of radioactive warfare because people wanted to make things for weapons they also wanted of course to make power energy and nuclear power stations produce these things as a consequence of producing electricity trouble is they are radioactive for millions of years how do you store them safely well one plan that scientists had come up with was that you turn them into a sort of ceramic so So you take something which occurs in nature, a ceramic material, you mix into the mix some of these radioactive materials and then you forge them into a sort of glass or a ceramic which is stable for a long time. It's very hard, very hard wearing. You can bury it and it means that the radiation doesn't then leach away. It doesn't because these things are effectively waterproof. The radiation is trapped inside the material and if you bury that under the ground it will just harmlessly turn into some radiation which irradiates the soil around it harmlessly and after a few hundred thousand years, it's considered safe. Not so, says Ian Farnham, who's a chemist and a researcher at Cambridge University. What they've done is to say, well, what happens to these materials if they're being irradiated in this way for thousands of years? So they've got some materials that were made actually in the last 25 years or so, and they've been able, using very clever uh, magnetic techniques, to watch exactly what happens to the structure of these crystals, these ceramics, when a radioactive element decays. Now, plutonium and uranium, when they decay, they produce what are called alpha particles. These are analogous to the nucleus of a helium, and they come zipping out. It's the same stuff that was produced by polonium that uh, is thought to have done away with the Russian chap recently, Alexander Litvinenko. Now, it's not actually the radiation that's a problem, though, because this is heavy. These alpha particles are heavy. And when one of these comes out of one of these radioactive um, atoms, it doesn't actually harm the material it passes through very much. But what it does do is it gives the nucleus that gave, gave rise to it a massive great kick in the opposite direction, rather like uh, when you fire a gun you get a recoil hitting the gun butt into your shoulder. This slams this nucleus into all of the other atoms in the crystal and it creates a sort of crystal game of billiards. 
And this in time causes a massive breakdown of the structure of the crystal. In fact, every time it emits one alpha particle, so one of the atoms decays, it destroys 5,000 or displaces 5,000 atoms in the crystal. And after just 100 years or so, the crystal is already full of holes, like a Swiss cheese. And after 1,000 years or so, it's completely amorphous. It ceased to be a crystal. So in other words... It's no use as a storage material at all. We need to store this stuff for a quarter of a million years, not just a thousand. So it just won't work, is the bottom line. And the use, the good news is that now scientists have this technique, they can start to explore other potential materials that hopefully will be a bit more robust, and maybe last a bit longer. Oh, it looks like it's back to the drawing board. Anyway, on a slightly different, uh, different tack, a collaboration of scientists from the US, Canada, Europe and Asia have discovered a new gene that could be important in Alzheimer's disease. Well, let's hope they can remember what they did with it. Um, the researchers think that faults in a gene called SORL1 might help with the formation of little clumps of protein in the brain. And these are known as amyloid plaques, and they're a classic hallmark of Alzheimer's disease. So the plaques build up in the brain and it basically stops your brain functioning. So researchers thought, well, good place to start. Let's look at the genes that are involved in processing these amyloid proteins. So, you know, what makes them in the cells? So to find this gene, the scientists combed through genetic data taken from many families where more than one person had Alzheimer's. So that suggests there's a consistent genetic fault in them. And they found that many of the people from these families had faults in the SORL1 gene, but not in six other genes that are also involved in processing these amyloid proteins. And they looked at a wide range of families from across the globe and all found the same mistakes popping up again and again. And they also measured the level of this protein, the SORL1 protein, in the the blood of people with Alzheimer's and found that it was much less in people who had the disease than people who didn't. So does this mean we might have a test for Alzheimer's in, in the offing then? It's potentially a test. Um, it's also significant because they think that the, um, the SORL1 SOR1 protein is actually involved in shifting amyloid uh, proteins around in the cells. So that explains why uh, if it's faulty or if it's not there, then they can't shift their amyloid around properly so it builds up in plaques. So at the moment, they haven't worked out what particular faults directly link to Alzheimer's. So there can't be a genetic test at the moment. Um, but potentially, it's a, a way into treating them um, and also a way into sort of advanced diagnosis or working out who's most at risk. The Naked Scientists, supported by the Wellcome Trust. So, Dave, first of all, give us a rundown. What are we doing this week? We're going to be doing some chemistry of coppers, spare change. That's Policemen, coppers. <laughs> be an alternative, I guess. Okay, so, so what, do we, what do we need? So what you need first is at least five um, coppers. They want to be all about the same degree of dirtiness, so the sort of dirt, dirty sort of brown stuff. You want them all to be about the same. Probably so tarnished. Tarnished, just a bit tarnished. You don't want them really, really tarnished, otherwise it will take ages to work. Okay. And then you want sort of three or four sort of household liquids. Vinegar is a good one. Maybe some water. I've got some coke and some uh, cocaine. Apple juice. <laughs> wow, coke. Dave, that's a, that's brave. Admitting some that cola, already. Chris. Cola, <laughs> cola, okay, cola, and not bleach. Bleach is probably a bit dangerous. So things you can drink, things you might consider just routinely putting in your mouth. I think is is probably the. The yeah. way to, to say this, isn't it? And three glasses. Or yeah, how one glasses? glass for each liquid. Okay. So, how much liquid in each glass? So, put in about um, a cu- couple of centimetres of each liquid into each glass. So I'll put some water into this one. Okay. Um, some vinegar into the next one. Yep. It's particularly unpleasant smelling vinegar. Yes, uh, I noticed that, that when you were sort of setting your things up earlier. It made the studio stink. Uh, let's have some fizz because that's. Oh. that's, that's, that's I'm, some... I'm eager to see, as someone who occasionally drinks cans of this stuff, exactly what will happen. 
So a little bit of Coca-Cola, or cola of some of your choice, fizzing away nicely there, and just some apple juice for a bit of variety at the far end. Okay, then what I want you to do is take each of your coppers, which you've all got to be about the same dirtiness, and put one into each glass. Um, so I'll do that now. Delicate there. Beautifully, elegantly done, I feel. Um, <laughs> Delia Ansel. Yeah. <laughs> Should have seen you just chucked them. <laughs> now then I want you to just leave those for sort of leave those for a few minutes, yep. keep an eye on them and compare them to the one which you left outside. To, that's um, your control. It's your yeah. control, yeah. so you know what's changed. Okay. And then once well, they've changed quite a lot, take them all out and compare them and phone in with what happens. Just one thing, once you've left them in there, don't drink the liquids afterwards. Wouldn't taste good, no? It wouldn't taste good, and it might be some copper in there, which isn't very good for you. Laying the facts bare, the naked scientists. Here's Connor, who is in Tillingham. Hello, Connor. Hello. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientists. What's your question? Uh, Yes, can you tell me where all the sand in the Sahara Desert comes from, please? (laughs) (laughs) Where does all the sand in the Sahara come from? I I reckon that it comes out of people's shoes who've gone on beach holidays. That's a good call. Well, of course, let's, let's talk about what sand is. Sand is, of course, tiny fragments of rock. So you have a lot of rock, and when rock wears down, it produces smaller bits of rock, which are pebbles, and when they wear down, you get even smaller bits of rock, and eventually you get down to sand. So it's just ground-up rock. Uh, It's silica, effectively, isn't it? I think you'd probably say, Dave. And uh, the reason it ends up washing up on beaches is because the sea can move sand around and wind can move sand around very easily. Rocks, of course, are more likely to stay put, so you end up with the sand doing a sort of a chromatography experiment almost. It, It separates things by size, and the sand ends up on the beach and the stones end up on the seabed largely the sand ends up on the top pretty much in the sahara it's a question of there were lots of sandstones there they've got weathered and broken down over time by rain and sun and wind it's produced accumulations of sand and they built up over time to produce this massive desert yeah rocks can be made of more different things than just silica um it's also known as quartz the type of silica which um it's uh, sand's made out of it's basically the toughest material so it's the one which gets left over last so basically sand is a rock which has been crushed over and it's what gets left over when you smash it up for a long time connor quick go at the quiz uh, yes please uh we've got here the usa is the world's biggest producer of gold do you think that's science fact or science fiction fiction Yep, you're right. The USA is the second largest, accounting for 11% of the gold supplies. The top producer is South Africa with 14. Well done, Connor. One out of one. Nearly a third of Germany is covered in trees. Do you think that's fact or fiction? Fact. Yeah, Germany is a very green country, literally. Um, my dad's Germany absolutely loves recycling. Um, about one third of the land area of Germany is covered in trees. Well done. Connor, thanks for your call. Okay, thank you. Bye bye. It's time to hop across the ocean and find out what's been going on in Science Update, where Bob and Chelsea have been trying to avoid noise and distractions. This week for the Naked Scientists, I'm going to talk about why tiny distractions can interfere with your focus in a big way. But first, Chelsea has a story about how engineers are helping medics overcome some major interference, noise. There's no instrument more central to a doctor's toolkit than a stethoscope. That's why scientists at the Army Aeromedical Research Lab have designed a new kind that works in noisy conditions, like on a battlefield, in a helicopter, or in a stadium. Acoustical engineer Adrian Houtsma says it uses ultrasound, sound waves at a frequency of about 2.5 million hertz. 
The human ear can only hear up to about 20,000 hertz. And we realize that a helicopter may make a lot of noise, but there is no noise at 2.5 megahertz. So the two would not interfere with each other. He says instead of listening passively to the heartbeat, the ultrasound stethoscope sends high-frequency sound waves into the tissue, listens as they bounce back, and then transforms them into sound the doctor can hear. It looks sounds very similar to a regular conventional stethoscope, but internally it is something totally different. And if you listen carefully, it sounds a little different, too, because the underlying physical processes of an ultrasound stethoscope and of a conventional one are totally different. In fact, he thinks more studies may reveal that the ultrasound stethoscope can hear details that conventional stethoscopes can't, like damage in a specific valve. That could make doctors look at this classic tool of medicine in a whole new light. Thanks, Chelsea. If you ask your kids to turn down the volume on the TV while paying your bills, be careful. You might make more mistakes if you can barely hear it at all. This according to Boston University psychologist Takeo Watanabe and his colleagues. They asked volunteers to work on a simple computer task while distracting dots darted around on the screen. And the volunteers performed worse when the distractions were too small to consciously notice. Brain imaging studies showed that these subliminal distractions mostly bypassed the prefrontal cortex, which filters out irrelevant information and went straight to the brain's visual centers. As a result, the motion was processed and resulted in disrupting the task performance more greatly. So muting distractions without eliminating them may actually hurt productivity. Thanks, Bob. Next time, we'll be back to distract you with more science stories from the States. Until then, I'm Chelsea Wald. And I'm Bob Hershon for AAAS, the Science Society. Back to you, Naked Scientists. Oh, thanks, Chelsea and Bob. If you want to hear more from the Science Update crew, then just go to their website. That's www.scienceupdate.com. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, the Naked Scientists. Got a question here from Sheila. Um, love your show. Thanks for making science fun and interesting, which is nice. Question for you. Does drinking too much milk, i.e. calcium, reduce your physical endurance or stamina? I can think it probably would because if you drink <coughs> tons of milk, it will make you quite fat. And if you get too fat, then, of course, you're carrying enormous amounts of weight and therefore burning off lots of calories. And that's going to reduce your endurance, isn't it? Um, what are the side effects of drinking lots of milk? <laughs> well, if you drink milk that isn't skimmed, it's got lots and lots of fat in it. So having lots and lots of fat uh, isn't good for you because of the calories, but also because it furs up your blood vessels. Milk's also very rich in calcium, which means um, in people who are prone to stones, like kidney stones, if you, don't drink, if, you, if you have too high calcium, you can deposit that in your kidneys and get kidney stones. And the other side effect of milk that not many people know is if you have irritation to the stomach, the stomach lining, and you're at risk of getting, say, stomach ulcers, Calcium is used as a sort of a co-signal by the wall of the stomach to produce acid. So if you have calcium levels going up in the blood, you make more acid. Now, some people, when they have a bit of a dodgy stomach, they'll think, I'll drink some milk to settle my stomach. Now, when you first do that, your stomach feels a lot happier because what you've done is to give the acid in your stomach something other than the wall of your stomach to eat. So as a result, then you feel better. But then the calcium gets absorbed, goes into the bloodstream, increases the amount of acid your stomach wants to make, and so you get a vicious cycle and the whole thing comes back together again. So, not good. We've got another question here from Thjord Bjarnason. I'm not sure where he is, but he sounds somewhere Scandinavian. Um, he says, hi there. We're all familiar with a common mirror. 
So what you look in and what when Chris looks in it, it breaks. I presume that it if reflects electromagnetic waves in the visible spectrum, i.e. that's light, so that we can see ourselves. But how effective are mirrors at reflecting other electromagnetic waves like X-rays and radio waves? So he wants to know, for example, if someone had really bad cell phone reception in a building, uh, if they stood near a mirror, would that reflect the signal? Dave, what do you reckon? It depends what you make the mirror out of. Um, if you're looking at radio waves, you're going to have to make the mirror out of much thicker metal because you kind of need the same thickness of metal compared to the wavelength of, of the electromagnetic radiation. And that's actually how satellite dishes work. They're basically just like a big curved mirror which concentrates all of the radio of the um, get, uh, microwaves coming down from the satellite. I can tell that because they're often, to keep the weights down, they're porous, aren't they? They've got little holes. It's, it's more hole than actual metal, in fact. Because the wavelength is big enough that the yeah. holes are much more than wavelength and it doesn't matter. I guess uh, it's the same principle as to why you can have a light on inside your microwave and you can see the food cooking, even though it's, it's still being cooked by the effectively equivalent of light, microwaves, but the wavelength of the microwaves is far longer than the wavelength of the visible light, which uh, comes out through the mesh in the door, but the microwaves can't. Because, yeah, a microwave is keeping all the microwaves in the microwave by using a whole lot of basically metal mirrors. Um, once you get beyond the visible light into ultraviolet, ultraviolet is quite easy to make mirrors for. Once you get into X-rays, it's very difficult. And so making X-ray te- telescopes is very difficult. Sometimes they do it just by using a bag of gas to act like a um, lens rather than mirrors. What about mobile phone waves? What sort of frequency are they? They're radio waves, Those, aren't they? Yeah, radio waves, sort of microwave end of radio waves. So, so they should uh, be reflected by... A she- sheet of aluminium would work beautifully f- for that. Dave, how does a crane compare to the wavelength of television signals? The, the gantry on a crane. <laughs> um, I'm coming to... I, you're looking at me a bit quizzically. I'll come to it in a second. I think um, wavelength of television signals... It's definitely less than a metre. Um, I couldn't but get Would, would a crane jib interfere with the signal? Could quite easily. Because when I was in Sydney, right, no one believed me. When I was living in Sydney, uh, I worked for the ABC for six months, like the BBC, but in Australia. And I could watch television on this. We stayed in this person's flat and I could watch television in the morning until seven o'clock. I couldn't watch television all day until about 6pm, at which point the signal became great again. And... It stopped at lunchtime. I could watch telly at lunchtime as well. And, and I thought, what the hell's going on here? And then I got a map of Sydney and I got up, I was in a roo- had a rooftop flat and I looked out across Sydney and I could see the transmitter. And, I th- and do you know what was on the other side of it? It was the transmitter. Then there was this massive building site with these big tall cranes on the top of a big tower block and then us. And the only thing I can think of, and, and actually I did eventually start some making some inquiries and people laughed at me, um, you know, I said, well, maybe the cranes are swinging around when they're working during the day and this is blocking the signal and interfering with it quite badly because the signal became unwatchable. And then, of course, at lunchtime, they were swung the cranes around into the wind and it wasn't a problem anymore. Stripping down science. Okay, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. Louise is in Norfolk. Hello, Louise. Hello. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientists. What's your question? Um, well, I'm doing this um, project in science. Mm-hmm. And... I wondered um, how um, air sacs yep. um, in the lungs, how do they help with like gas exchange? OK. Well, the answer is that your lungs are filled... They're not just like balloons. The lungs are filled with thousands and thousands and thousands, millions, in fact, of tiny balloons, and they're called alveoli. They're the air sacs that you're mentioning. And what the, the reason the lungs don't just have one big balloon 
they have millions of tiny balloons is that each of those balloons has to have a wall. And in the wall of each of those balloons are tiny capillaries, very, very thin-walled blood vessels. And the blood from the heart gets pumped through your lungs around the walls of those tiny air sacs first and then back to the heart before it gets jetted off around the rest of the body. And as the blood flows through these tiny blood vessels around the air sacs, the alveoli, it exchanges carbon dioxide, which is dissolved in the blood, that gets chucked out of the blood because there's more of it in the blood than there is in the air sac. And oxygen, which there's lots of in the air sac, comes out of the alveolus and into the blood. It dissolves in the red blood cells haemoglobin. It forms a compound with the haemoglobin, which is the stuff that makes your blood red and gets carried away. And the average red blood cell takes about 0.3 seconds, so a third of a second, to pick up all the oxygen it can from the wall of the alveolus but it spends 0.8 seconds nearly a second actually making that journey so the red blood cell has three times longer than it needs to pick up all the gas it needs so that's how the gas exchange occurs and that's why you don't just have one balloon in your chest you have millions of tiny balloons it gives your lungs about the surface area i think of a tennis court if you were to spread them all out well huge thank you that's all right do you want to go at the quiz um go on it's only fair you ready Have a go at this one. A wacky inventor has patented a design for spectacles, glasses for chickens. Do you think that's science fact or science fiction, Louise? Science. Mm. Science. Fiction? I'm afraid not. It's true. Um, The UK Patent Office has received a design for chicken glasses, but not intended to boost the eyesight of the optically challenge that stop the birds pecking each other. Kind chickens. Louise, you needed two out of two today. Unfortunately, you only got uh, you would only have managed to get one if you got the next one right, so we'll have to leave it there. But thank you for having a go. Okay. All right, great to have you on The Naked Scientist. All right? Hi. See you. Ken's in Brentwood. Hi, Ken. Hello. Thanks for joining us on The Naked Scientist. Okay. Thanks for listening. <laughs> um, we're an island with a shortage of power surrounded by water, with rising water levels due to global warming. Why can't we crack water, which is a constituent of two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen, burn the hydrogen by using the oxygen, and then create an ongoing process of cracking the water and burning it and generating our own power? It would be lovely if that worked. Unfortunately, if you think about it, it takes exactly the same amount of energy, if not more, to split the water into hydrogen and oxygen than you could possibly get by burning the two back together again. So it will just cost you energy and, you'll need, and you, it won't get, get you anywhere, I'm afraid. There's no such thing as a free lunch in the world of physics, I'm afraid, Ken. <laughs> lovely idea. It's a bit like people saying, why don't you have a massive great generator attached to your car engine and as the engine runs, it'll generate loads of electricity and charge a battery and that can make the car run and eventually you would have so much energy stored you wouldn't need to have petrol in the car anymore. That's sort of what you're saying, but in chemical terms. And, and it doesn't take a genius to say, well, actually, if I look at it in those terms, with all the losses of converting all these things from one to the next, there's going to be a little bit of inefficiency. It just won't add up. You're going to be a loser in the long run. Oh, well. Never mind. But there are, there are some fuel cells that use the energy from light to split hydrogen and oxygen in water, and then you can get, use that to get power. So if you can find a way of you know, making light really effective at doing this, and there are some cells that do that. So it's, it's not entirely stupid, but you can't do it just by, uh, by chemical means. Quick go at the quiz, Ken. Go on. More than half of the world's bicycles are in China. Science fact or science fiction? 
You're absolutely right. There's an estimated one billion bikes on Earth, and over half of them are in China. I think the rest are in Cambridge, actually. Beijing has more than 10 million, and its streets are so crowded with bikes, they're actually banned in some parts of the city. Well done, Ken. You've got to get this next one right to stay in with a chance, OK? Bats find their way around using the Earth's magnetic field. Is that fact or fiction? That's fiction. I'm afraid not it's true. Apparently the English science Richard Holland has found that at least one species of bat has its own magnetic compass, which it sets using the sun, because it knows it always sets in the west, and the team have placed it in placed bats in artificial magnetic fields, and it really confused them. Thank you, Ken, for having a go. Sorry you didn't get that one right, but it's been brilliant having you on The Naked Scientist. Fancy listening to The Naked Scientist in your bed, <laughs> on your way to work, or even at work. Mm-hmm. Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. Now, Dave, I've, on the basis of, of your kitchen science things, I've got two emails here. They seem to be sort of poles apart. Uh, I'll read them both. They both say they like the show very much. This is from Lee Thompson. He says, uh, best wishes for the new year. I'm looking forward to uh, you bringing out some more fantastic science um, uh, on The Naked Scientist this year. There have been some great highlights over the last year, especially your kitchen science section with your mint imperials and lemonade experiment. It was absolutely superb. Um, my only criticism of the show is the way in which climate change is reported in a fairly matter-of-fact and unquestioning way, which seems to be true of all sorts of media. Can you please do something about it? This Come on, Chris, get your oar in. Well, I'm pleased to say, Lee, next week we are going to do that because... Ali, who's working with us here on The Naked Scientist at the moment, has put together a programme. The first person of whom is going to be in it is Eric Wolfe from the British Antarctic Survey, and he's going to be answering some of these hard questions about what is the real evidence for the, the possibility of a, of, a clo- of a global climate change signal. Is it there or is it just fallacy? So he's a big fan of yours, Dave. Lee Thompson. Thank you, Lee. But um, Mitch Coriel writes to us. He says, um, folks, you do a fantastic show. I've got a degree in nuclear engineering and a master's in electrical engineering. And I have a passion for the life sciences, despite the fact I lack formal training in that. I enjoy astronomy as well as cosmology. Um, Needless to say, when I stumbled on your show on iTunes, that's our podcast, which you can get from nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. It's fantastic. He also says, um, please keep up the good work. I never miss one of your shows. I live in Washington, D.C. But he says, my only negative comments the kitchen science segment I don't think is very entertaining Dave and they waste precious air time uh, you could use that time to interview more guests and explore your current topics in more depth so what do you guys out there think do you think Dave's a waste of time and should be sacked or, or are you with Lee Thompson who says that Dave is absolutely superb Dave what do you reckon <laughs> you can't ask someone something like that. Cool. Answers not, well, look, the, the thing is, most of the, it's fair to say, I, sh- I should actually tell people that about 99.99% of the emails we've had have, have all said that they think the, your kitchen science experiments are absolutely brilliant, Dave. Joining us now from Chemistry World's Mark Peplow. Hi, Mark. Hello, Chris. Happy New Year. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Thank you. You gave us a rundown on why Alexander Litvinenko had a bit of a torrid time uh, when you joined us in December. Uh, This month, some very exciting news. I mean, let's just start at the top of the list. Um, How researchers are using heart cells to pump things around labs on chips. I mean, perhaps you'd better start off by explaining what a lab on a chip is. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, Chemists are very interested in trying to shrink uh, their laboratories down until they're the size of the sort of chip that you get in your computer, maybe just the size of a post 
postage stamp. Um, now, these can be used for doing chemical reactions on very small scales. Similar sorts of technologies could be used in medical implants as well. And this particular breakthrough, which has come from some Japanese scientists, is basically that rather than using a battery-powered pump to move liquids around, um, they've actually managed to strap a couple of bundles of heart cells on either side of a little plastic ball. Now, those heart cells will stay alive as long as you keep feeding them nutrients for up to five days, actually. And they actually pump continuously, as long as you keep them bathed in nutrients, and actually push the fluid through this little ball of plastic. It's only about five millimetres wide, but it's a really nice proof of principle that you don't necessarily need batteries on these tiny pumps. Is it actually worth doing, though? Why not just have tiny pumps? Why, why use heart cells? It sounds fiddly. Well, um, in, if you're actually constructing this on a lab, one of the difficulties could, uh, could be that while uh, technology in terms of moving liquids around and doing chemical reactions, that's shrinking all the time. Battery technology is developing quite a lot slower, so there's no point having a tiny laboratory if you have to have a massive battery to power it alongside. And in a sense, the same is true if you're using these in medical implants. Batteries can only last so long, so one can imagine that in the future, if you can actually um, attach heart cells to a pump so that it's actually going to work continuously all you need to do is to keep feeding them nutrients and they will go on and on and on they're if you like even going to beat ever ready batteries it is one of the most crazy things i've ever seen in science is looking down uh, a microscope at a petri dish full of cells and seeing them beating yeah there heart cells grown in the lab anyway so what's what's the deal with nanoparticles in exhaust fumes i thought that you know nanoparticles are they dangerous what's all this about well nanoparticles actually you, you if you look hard enough you can find them anywhere uh, nanoparticles are basically anything that you can measure in billionths of a meter so they're maybe a thousand times the width of a human hair something like that um we already know quite a lot about um micro particles in exhaust you know you can find them in diesel emissions and things like that now they're just about one fifth of the width of a hair something like that so we're talking on a completely different scale uh, so Justin Lingard and some of his colleagues at the University of Leeds have basically uh, sat out on a roadside for a month uh, in Leeds uh, and just sucked up particles from the air uh, to find out what's in there. Now, interestingly, they find that um, if you actually just count the number of particles there, the vast majority of them, 90% of them, are these nanoparticles, very small. Now, although we don't know exactly what risks may be associated with these, there is some suspicion that because they're so small, if you inhale them, they can potentially potentially get uh, into the lungs through those little alveoli, in fact, uh, and they can get through those alveoli walls a lot easier because they're so small and into your bloodstream. Now, again, we don't know what the effects of these might be once they're there, but it, it, one might suspect that it's not going to be absolutely ideal. OK, so um, what's this about milk and tea and it not helping... Um, yeah. yeah, that's right. It's, it's been around on the news quite a bit over the last week or so, actually. Um, uh, a group of German researchers that had said that um, if you... Uh, many people drink tea because, it's, uh, because of its supposed antioxidant properties. It's stuffed full of these things called polyphenols, uh, which are supposed to have uh, good health effects for you. But these, these researchers have found that if you add milk 
to your tea, it actually neutralises those health benefits. Um, what's actually going on, they suspect, is that once you put milk in, these proteins called caseins actually wrap themselves around these beneficial polyphenols, uh, which are very good at helping your arteries to expand. Uh, so they're good at increasing blood flow, uh, good for the heart. They actually wrap themselves around the polyphenols and, and stop them working uh, in, your, in your bloodstream. So effectively, if you put milk in your tea, it's no better for you than drinking hot water. It's certainly interesting because that was a really you know, laboratory chemical study, but some of the studies done in huge populations of people have found beneficial effects of tea and green tea and things like cancer and heart disease. So it'd be interesting to kind of drill down into it. One of the interesting things, actually, that uh, uh, our reporters found on the Chemistry World team was that when they spoke to a couple of researchers in the States about this, they pointed out that, yes, many of these studies had found benefits from drinking green and black tea uh, in countries in Asia and things like that. But when you you look at the UK, uh, you look at the epidemiology, there's no benefit from tea drinking at all, even though we're a nation of tea drinkers. I think we drink more tea than anyone else. Yeah. yeah. But per and, capita. And the reason why we don't get the benefit from that may be because we unusually choose to drink our tea with milk. I hope not, because I drink gallons of the stuff. Mark, thanks ever so much for coming. I hope you can stick around, because you can help us comment on Dave's kitchen science experiment this week. Dave, just give us a quick reminder as to what you want people to do. Um, Just get three or four coins, put them in maybe some water, some vinegar, some Coke, juice, juice, that sort of thing, and leave them for 15, 20 minutes and see what happens. Stripping down science. Okay, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists with Dr Chris, Dr Dave and Dr Kat. Pauline's in Essex. Hi, Pauline. Hello. Thank you for joining us. Uh, you want to talk about mobile phones? Um, about the mast, yeah. Far away. All right. It's just that um, I'm looking to buy a property and there's a, a phone mast, a 17-metre one. Um, I've got the actual planning paper in front of me and they've sort of looked into um, Elfris, etc. But I just wondered what, you know, what is the truth behind it or is it dangerous or not? Um, how far away is the mast? Um, it says from the school, um, it's 500 metres. Um, I would have thought that it's far less dangerous than using the phone yourself. Um, that, that no one's actually found any relationship with danger with actually using a phone. When you're using the phone, that transmitter is a couple of centimetres away from your head. Yeah. And, um, the strength of the signal goes down with the distance squared, so it's going to be thousands and thousands of times weaker. Um, than your mobile phone right next to your head. So, personally, well, I wouldn't just worry. sort of explore the science of this a little bit because I think it's a valid concern with these things proliferating all over the place. The, the thing that norm, people normally say is if you look at the energy of a microwave, and the reason we have these things in our kitchen and we cook with them and we're happy to put a microwave source, a mobile phone, to the side of our heads is because the energy in the wave in a microwave is not sufficient to break chemical bonds in the same way that the energy in an X-ray or a gamma ray or more intense forms of, ultra, of things like ultraviolet can, and therefore they're viewed as non-ionising forms of radiation and are viewed to be safe. That said... There's no evidence, actually, that if you do expose your nervous system to these things, that A, they won't have a temperature effect, because we think that they might warm your head up a little bit if you're exposed to, to a phone. But, of course, the mast is much further away than the phone is. That's the first point. But also, ex- exposing tissue to microwaves for long periods of time, does it actually have some, say, growth-related effects? People are looking at that, I think, from the perspective of cancer, aren't they, Kat? Certainly in terms of cancer, yeah, what you said, there, there isn't actually enough energy in phone radiation to damage DNA, which is the ultimate cause of cancer. And most of the studies, virtually all the studies that have been done, have not found 
a significant link between mobile phone use and cancer. The, the one thing we don't have is really long-term data, and that's hopefully coming in in the next couple of years. But the studies actually don't show, um, certainly in terms of cancer, they don't show an effect. Would you like to have a quick go at the quiz, Pauline? Try. <laughs> Some animals have a tongue so long that it goes all the way down to their heart. Is that a fact or fiction? Uh, fiction. This is great. No, it's true. Oh. Anteaters are an example of animals with tongues so long they won't fit in their mouths. They have a glossal tube with a pouch that goes all the way down the back of the throat to the chest where it sits in front of the heart. Um, and there's also a species of nectar-eating bat with a tongue that's one and a half times the length of its body. Right. Brilliant. <laughs> and it also stores that in its chest. Thank you, Pauline, for calling in. Norman's in Hunstanton. Hi, Norman. Yes, good evening to you. You want to talk about cliffs? Well, yes, because uh, it's an odd one. Uh, Hunstanton cliffs are uh, are unique. They are white chalk and then red chalk and then sandstone at the base of them. Their strata is exactly is uh, level, so consequently the cliffs haven't been raised up or anything like that during their, um, their growth or whatever you like to call it. Um, the chalk is obviously contains fossils. The red chalk, which is indoctrinated with iron at some time during its career, has, is in, in incorporating all the lots of fossils as well. But the sandstone, which is the main part of the cliffs, has no fossils at all. Why? Um, just because the rocks, uh, basically you're meaning that the bedding, so each layer of the rocks are all flat. Yes, they uh, are. The, it doesn't mean it hasn't moved up and down, because if all of the rock moves up at once, then it'll still look flat, but it can have moved up and down. So I think probably, I'm guessing, from, I know more about the west of the, the country, um, that the sand was um, probably produced, the lots of sandstones produced in the Permian period when the country was basically a big desert. Um, and then maybe the, water, um, the, the rocks all dropped by a few metres and it became under, underwater and then chalk was deposited as lots of little things in the sea and then it's all been lifted up again to make the cliffs you know at the moment. Norman, do you want to have a quick go at the quiz? Wait a minute, whoa. Because... Norman, do you want a quick go at the quiz? Yes, all right, I'll have a quick go. I can't... Uh... I'd like to talk a bit more about that, but obviously we can't at the time. So, yes, OK. OK, the pneumatic tyre was invented by a veterinary surgeon. Do you think that's fact or fiction? Pneumatic tyre, no. I'm afraid it was. Early bicycle wheels were wooden. Dunlop. Uh, Dunlop, who was apparently a vet. <laughs> Norman, thanks for having a go at our quiz. Thank you. And thanks for joining us on The Naked Scientist. Uh, do what you want, uh, wanted you to do, and thank you for everything. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Norman. Right, time for another instalment of our Science and Colour series. This week, our naked scientist, Anna Lacey, is looking at how the colour red could turn you into a world-class sportsman. Here's a question for you. What's the most important thing to think about if you're an Olympic wrestler, a premiership footballer, or a seasoned athlete like myself? Is it training hard, eating the right things? Well, maybe... But it turns out that the colour of your sports kit may make the difference between winning and losing. To explain why, while I do some stretches, here's Dr Russell Hill from the Evolutionary Anthropology Group at Durham University. We looked at the results from the combat competitions at the recent Olympic Games uh, to see if colour was influencing the success of competitors within events such as boxing and wrestling. And what we found was that even though individuals were randomly assigned either red or blue to wear, there were significantly more winners actually wearing the red coloration. So why do you think this might be? 
Well, we know within the animal kingdom that the color red is frequently associated with dominance. Uh, for example, in mandrel monkeys, it's only the dominant males that are able to display this red coloration as a sort of a badge of status. And we know that it's linked to testosterone levels in these males. So we think that something similar may be happening in human contests and that by wearing this red stimulus, it's giving competitors some form of advantage um, in one-on-one -on -one contests. So do you think this wearing red is going to have any bearing on whether someone, say, like Manchester United wins the league versus Chelsea? It's certainly true that if you look back over the last few decades, that teams wearing red have dominated the football leagues. Both Liverpool, Arsenal and Manchester United all wear red as their primary shirt colour. Uh, what is important, though, is that uh, individuals or teams need to be closely matched before this sort of red advantage takes effect. Simply wearing a red doesn't make you a brilliant footballer or boxer. And it is possible for teams such as Chelsea to sort of overcome that by uh, spending an awful lot of money. So uh, Manchester United do have an advantage as long as it uh, remains a relatively close competition. But if they go out and spend those Russian millions again this January, Chelsea could find themselves way out in front again. I mean, there are a lot of other things that are associated with the colour red, not only aggression, anger, passion, even warmth. I mean, why, why do you think that red is so important in, in these kind of contexts? Um, we're not entirely sure. We know it's a, a fairly consistent signal throughout uh, animals, so the fact that it's important in humans is perhaps not surprising. Uh, red is often one of the first colours that tends to get uh, identified after black and white or dark and light within human societies. So it clearly is an important colour and that may be perhaps due to the way it's linked in with the colour of blood. The associations we make, such as red representing blood and anger and blue as tranquil and cold, are heard pretty much everywhere. But the colours and what they relate to are not the same the world over. From the Department of Social Anthropology at Cambridge University, here's Professor Alan McFarlane. A very famous difference is that in the West, black is the colour of death and evil and things like this, whereas in China, Japan and East Asia, white is the colour of death. So there's a complete opposition. Is it the case that now the world is becoming much smaller? Are the colour associations changing, do you think? I think they are. That's to say, for instance, a Japanese or Chinese wedding will have white. I mean, the bride will wear white because it's a part of becoming modern, Western, etc., to adopt the color categories of whatever is the leading power in the world. So I think there's, there is a great homogenization going on all over the world. Even if everyone ends up describing emotions and using color in the same way, something that many would see as a great shame... We can at least breathe a sigh of relief when we look at the huge variety of colour in nature. So join me next week for the final part of the series and a whistle-stop tour of colour in the animal kingdom. Thank you, Anna Lacey, our own naked scientist, looking at how colour this week could turn you, well, not just this week, but every week, could turn you into a world-class sportsman. Tis the Naked Scientist with Dr Chris, Dr Dave and Dr Cat. Time now to catch up with our kitchen science this evening. Uh, now, one of the things which um, we asked you earlier was, what do you think about Dave's kitchen science? Well, Tony in March, Dave, is your biggest fan because he says, I think kitchen science is brilliant. It would be good if you could tell us the week before what we need to get. So uh, what do we need to get for next week then? 
Good question. Uh, <laughs> you haven't even thought it up yet, You'll have you? have to check the website. We'll let you know on the website. No, I'll tell you. I, I, I'll give you a slink preview, right? It's all about exercise and exercise bikes. So you're actually going to calculate, I, I mean, I believe, uh, how much energy goes into an exercise bike and how much energy is burned off all over Britain in a gym. Yeah, that's right. Uh, okay, this week what I was doing was I put some coins in various liquids. I put um, some one in some water, one in some vinegar, one in some um, Coke, and one in some apple juice. And if you look at the one that was in the water, it's gone about it's about the same colour as it was before, about the same as one which I didn't put in anything at all as a con- control. Um, the one in the vinegar, that looks really nice and shiny. Um, the one in the Coke, slightly less shiny, and the one in the apple juice, about the same as the one in the Coke. When you say Coke, you are, it's cola, right? It's Sorry, not, cola. Yeah. Not cocaine or anything like that. Um, but but so, so what's going on? Tell us the chemistry of this. Well, all the ones which had an effect are what's called acids. Um, so, and vinegar's known quite well. It's very, all the acids tend to be very sour tasting things. They're the ones which kind of bite the back of your throat. Um, and what they, and when coins are left in your pocket for a long time, the copper in them reacts with the oxygen in the air and turns into copper oxide. And that's the black gunky stuff. And when you put that in an acid, it will dissolve just the oxide, leaving behind a nice, shiny, clean metal coin. Why doesn't the water do that? Um, Because what happens is the acid's got some hydrogen on its own, which will react with the oxygen in the oxide um, and turn into water, leaving the other half of the acid, which in vinegar is called an acetic group, um, because it's acetic acid. And so the copper gets dissolved with that and sits around in solution. And I've taken lots and lots of coins and left them in for about an hour um, in some very strong vinegar, and you can see the slight green tinge. So that that would be what chemical? Well, that's the copper in the copper acetate in there. Actually, looks ever so slightly green. Um, it's not very strong, although definitely don't drink that if you are doing it because copper isn't very good for you, and it can make all sorts of things called free radicals, which do damage in your body. So don't drink it. So the, bo- the bottom line here is, you know, what, what are we asking people to kind of t- to take a message to take away from this? Um, it's an interesting reaction you can do with metals. And if you ever want to clean anything, uh, any metals, a good thing to do in is a nice acid. And that shows that, that cola drinks, these fizzy drinks are extremely corrosive then and are probably not good for your teeth. No, because it will just dissolve your teeth in the same way as it dissolving the copper oxide. Mark, any, any Royal Society of Chemistry chemistry comments on Dave's kitchen science experiment this week? Well, you're, you're absolutely right about uh, Coca-Cola. It contains uh, vast quantities of something called uh, phosphoric acid. And in fact, the Coca-Cola Corporation is one of the biggest consumers in the world of phosphoric acid. It means that Coke has a pH of about 3 or 3.5, um, just slightly different from dilute hydrochloric acid that you may have used in the labs at school. So, and stomach acid, of course, which is hydrochloric yeah, acid. that's so. right. That's right. I remember I remember a, a demonstration actually when I was a kid by my chemistry teacher dropping a, uh, a, a tooth that had come out of some child's mouth in the middle of a lesson in a can of Coke. And, and by the end of the, teachers by in the end days, of the le- uh, Yeah, we did. <laughs> I remember those punches. Um, <laughs> but by the end of the lesson, you know, just half an hour, the tooth had completely dissolved in the acid. So it, it's, really, it's really worth knowing actually how much acid you're putting into your mouth when you drink a can of Coke. It's not just um, Coke, though. I mean, lots of fizzy drinks all use phosphoric acid because it does give quite a, a strong flavour, doesn't it, yeah, Dave said? Because right. acids taste lemony, don't they? Yeah, they tend to. It's because it's hitting certain parts of your tongue uh, in certain ways. When it gets bathed in those hydrogen ions that Dave mentioned before, um, it sets off a, a series of little uh, nervous reactions, if you like, in your tongue so that it registers that uh, acid flavour. Now, talking about things you put in your mouth, Nigel is in Peterborough. He wants to talk about diets. Hi, Nigel. Good evening. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. What do you want to chat about? 
Uh, what I wanted to know was, um, I've lost five stones since May. Oh, very good. Following quite a strict um, diet. Mm. Uh, but my question is, is most weeks I lose between one to two pounds, but around every four to five weeks I'm losing um, between four to six pounds. Mm. And I just wondered why it didn't each week just stay the same between one and two. And right. You had such a huge difference on maybe the third, fourth week. Okay, well, when people begin to diet and, and lose weight, you'll have noticed that the first few weeks you lost enormous amounts of weight and then the weight loss seemed to slow. Yeah. Did you notice that? Yeah. So the reason for that is that the body initially burns off things called glycogens. That's a polymer of sugar and it binds enormous amounts of water. And that means when you, when you burn that off and use it for energy, you lose the water from the body as urine that it would have been locked up in. So the, you lose double the amount of weight because you lose the sugar weight plus you lose the water weight. Then you start to just burn fat and, of course, fat doesn't mix with water, so the weight loss slows down. But every so often, if you have a bit of a binge or you slip up or it's Christmas or whatever and you pack in some carbohydrates, they turn into a bit of glycogen, weight creeps up a little tiny bit, then you go back to your very se se severe diet and go back on burning fat. First thing your body does is to say, I'm getting hungry, I'm going to burn that glycogen. So it burns the glycogen back off, you lose the water again, and then you're back to how you were when you were just burning fat. Did you notice little blips up in weight before you had the little surge of increased decreasing weight, if you see what I mean? Um, I noticed some weeks following a strict diet, if, you, if I did have a bit of a slip-up, mm. takeaway or something, yeah. that you would actually still lose weight. Yeah, but not as much as you would have lost, probably. No, probably I would think. not. <laughs> Quick go at the quiz for you, Nigel. Yes, please. OK. The uh, average hedgehog has about 50,000 spikes on it. Fact or fiction? Um, fiction. Yep. Um, that's about ten times too many. Hedgehogs have around 5,000 prickles, and they're made of keratin, which is the same stuff that makes our hair and fingernails. At this given moment, about 700 million people are talking on the mobile phone. What do you think of that, uh, Nigel? Fact or fiction? Fact. Yep, apparently global telephone operators can handle about three-quarters of a billion simultaneous phone calls and they're happening all the time. Not bad. Two out of two. You're in the hat. Brilliant. Thanks for, having you, thanks for joining us on your programme, on the programme, Nigel. Happy New Year as well. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Here's the Naked Scientist with Dr Chris, Dr Dave and Dr Cat. We're pretty much running out of time. We might just be able to sneak in Andy very, very quickly. Hi, Andy. Hello, mate. You're going to have to be very quick. Yep, right. Just like a nicotine patch, I'll wear a morphine one. OK. Back. A 72-hour patch. What I'm curious about, when you touch it, other than feeling a bit sticky, it's yep. basically dry. Yep. How does the body absorb it? OK, well, it's morphine gets into the brain and gives you those effects of pain relief very effectively because it's very, very soluble in fat. So when you stick one of these patches on the body, the morphine is in a special reservoir in the patch and it slowly comes through a membrane and dissolves in the fat that's in your skin and your body, subcutaneous fat, and then gets into the bloodstream. And that's how you absorb it. Thanks for joining us on The Naked Scientist. We've got to go because we're out of time. Thanks very much for listening this week. And also thank you to our production team, Anna Lacey and Ali Webb. Tune in next week for the lowdown on climate change when we'll be asking, is it significant that New York has got no snow? In Canada, there are people mowing their grass when it should be minus 20 degrees below, whilst here in Britain, we've had the warmest year ever recorded. Is it significant or is it just a glitch? Well, we'll be examining the climate change story and also exploring other ways to generate enough electricity to power our energy-hungry world. 
We'll also be asking how much electricity could all those people who are exercising in gyms be contributing to the national grid? And we'll be doing the experiments to find out. So join us next time for more science fun and frolics or pop into our science discussion forum at nakedscientist.com forward slash forum for a bit more scientific stimulation in the meantime. Until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.